0: You're listening to Death of the Reader here on 2SER 107.3. We are and Herds for your Murder Mystery World Tour. And it is time to take another break from our dear books and go into the world of television. Having covered Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's The Sign of the Four, we are delving into the world of Sherlock Holmes adaptations. Starting our way with... The incredible 2010 BBC adaptation of Sherlock, just the first season, and Herds,
1: just the first season. Hello, Flex. How you doing? Oh,
0: I, I will say before we get into this, we did a we did a watch night with a group of fans. You guys joined us online. It was great time. We watched the whole way through the show. We're talking smack about it as we went. Some of us had seen it before. Some of us hadn't. It was just like the show where one of us has read things and the other one hasn't. And I, I had a great time. I had an absolute great time.
1: It was madness.
0: This show has simultaneously aged incredibly and pathetically.
1: Uh, I'm going to lean towards the latter, uh, more than the former, but you know what? I'm with you. I'm with you. I'm not going to say I didn't enjoy myself, uh, with that watch party. It was late at night. We, we watched way into the, the wee hours of the morn and I had a great time snacking and goofing off. Oh my goodness, my mind is blown by the decisions they decided to make in adapting Sherlock.
0: This show, BBC Sherlock, was created by uh, Mark Gaddis and Stephen Moffat, both of whom have done lots of rounds in the BBC as writing, directing, and showrunning. Uh, Moffat, in particular, is well known for a run on Doctor Who that was to some well uh, constructed and to others ill fated. The show that they have made, starring uh, Martin Freeman and Benedict Cumberbatch, is astoundingly well put together on a technical level, but I think one of the reasons that it has aged poorly is because when it was coming out, there was always that anticipation of, oh my God, what's this leading to? Where's it going to go? Could it get better? But in hindsight... Once you know that things only really go downhill, it it loses a bit of that spark. The performances, the way that it's shot, the way that the sound is edited are all exquisite, if completely over the top.
1: Insane. Absolutely. I mean, my mind, I lost my mind in the first, like, chase sequence of the story. They are cutting, they're doing, like, these hard cuts and, like, slow motion. Like, it's basically stop motion they use to, like depict Sherlock Holmes' mindset as he's chasing criminals around the streets of London. Well,
0: that's one of the things when it comes to adaptations of Sherlock Holmes stories is that you need to have some way to portray what is going on in Sherlock's head in the books, they pretty much just use Watson. Watson is the way that you go like, hmm, that Sherlock sure is a-thinking weird, and slowly it kind of comes out how he pieced everything together, and that's the charm, is following how this all-powerful intellect managed to solve these things, but you know, the various adaptations have taken different approaches, and the BBC version basically presents it where we get these pop-ups on screen of like, ah, these are the words and things he's noticing, these are the texts that are being sent, these are the things that he's looking up, so you can kind kind of see the the path of the map laid out in front of you, and that chase sequence kind of brings it all together at the end of the first episode, because you see the literal map he is painting in his head to try chase this cab down.
1: I hated that. I want to let you know. First off, uh, non-intellect, he's a high-functioning sociopath.
0: Do your research.
1: Second off, second off, do your research. Second off, I want to set. I- despise that chase sequence. I felt so confused and lost, I could do nothing but laugh the entire time. However, I do like the idea because we're not really getting, like, it, it is important in detective fiction to give the reader clues so they can solve the mystery. Like, I think we can all agree on that. So the concept of of showing, like, you know, focusing in on the important clues, giving the reader a moment to think about them, like, there's the scene in the very first episode, we, we find our, our murder corpse um, and there's uh, a ring on on the on the corpse's finger, and uh, Sherlock takes the ring, pulls it off the off the body, and he's looking at the ring. And at first he says, you know, oh, it's it's wet. And then he looks at the inside, and says it's like it's it's dry on the inside. And he says, oh wait, no, it's. Like, he, you could see that he's thinking about it. Like, it's um, it's clean on the outside, but dirty on the inside. It's clean on the outside, but dirty on the inside. Like
0: It's the other way around. It's that it's dirty on the outside, but it's clean from her taking it on and off over again.
1: Yes, exactly. It, it doesn't matter what the clue was, honestly. It, do, it does not matter. The point is that it's different one way and the other. That's, that's the point that matters. That doesn't really lead us to the conclusion of the episode. I think that the clues that we're given by the story that the, that the camera and that those words seem to like focus in on, they either lead to things that are totally like inconsequential or that lead to such sudden jumps of logic that mind you are typical of a short narrative. But uh, I, I I feel like there is such a lack of direction uh, in, in terms of like where the audience sits in this. I don't know. Maybe you can help me kind of work this out, but I, I feel, I felt like, the show was uh, constantly patronizing me with the amount of like back and forth on very simple things um, and the lack of time on very complex things. Um, maybe you have some better kind of foresight on that because you've watched the whole thing.
0: No, I I, I I think that is absolutely one of the fatal flaws of this show. Um I've done a lot of research preparing for this because I had seen these shows back when, and I was like, I I didn't think I could talk about it for a full episode without getting to know a bit more into the, the, the depths of things, and I found out about the pilot episode, which is basically, the fans call it like episode zero or something, and it is... The same episode as episode one, but shot previously with a lower budget, simpler cast, and a simpler structure, and it was like half an hour shorter
1: or thereabouts. Oh, that would be perfect.
0: And supposedly the half an hour of stuff that they cut out was all of the superfluous stuff tying together things like, you know, the twi- you know the twists and turns of Sherlock's family, and these side scenes where you're like, ooh, who is this mysterious man who they end up just blowing their load on at the end of the episode and telling us anyway?
1: They do that so much. Like, they literally drop, they name drop Mariotti at the end of the first episode. Of three, it's madness. We'll have to talk more about the actual structure in a bit, but yeah, it's it's madness.
0: And I think uh, that one of the problems with the show is that it loses its focus on what matters. So, in the transition from that pilot episode zero to episode one, when they were reshooting it, they, they lost their focus on the strength of the initial mystery and the way they'd presented it and the intrigue around it and instead tried to, tried to draw out this final scene that basically boils down to the poison scene from The Princess Bride.
1: I'm so glad you had me watch that because I literally, I was watching, I was like, this is, this is The Princess Bride. Mm-hmm. Oh, It's madness.
0: Basically, there's this big, you know, shoot-up game between like oh, how does he, how does this uh, culprit manage to get people to kill themselves, and it turns out that it's just a game of chance at the end and it's it's rubbish. It undermines the entire strength of of that puzzle, and then when you go back and look at the lady, uh, the lady in pink, or who would be the lady in scarlet in the original books, there is that excellent puzzle. of Like, oh, here's what this clue leads to. Here's what this clue leads to. Here's what this clue leads to. But the, the moment we get, the moment we start approaching that climax, suddenly the, the clues start to disconnect from what is happening on screen. So we go from like, oh, well she could have been here. She could have done this. This is what could have happened. And, you know, it leads you to the point where it's like, oh, it's a cab driver.
1: I want to tell you, the Mm -hmm. thought had crossed my mind. Like, there was cab drivers racing around in the opening of the episode. It's going to be somebody's mobile. All this sort of thing. But as I was trying to solve the mystery, I thought, all right, what would any sensible murder mystery do? They would present us with a character with a name that we could latch onto and say, ah, I see, these are the suspects, because they are named characters that have appeared early in the story and that are definitely not going to show up in the last 20 minutes and then hog the screen time for the rest of that 20 minutes. But anyway,
0: it kind of it falls apart in in many ways uh, because it just it it doesn't know, as I said, what matters. That cab driver, I think, is one of the moments where it understands what matters in that, like, yes, this cab driver is an unimportant character. And the point is that he's being controlled And that makes sense, and I can get why they didn't give him a name there, because, you know, he's a character that basically just leads to another suspect. That's fine in the overall narrative of things. The problem is that because they immediately shatter that mystery and go, Oh, Moriarty! Like it undermines the entire tension of the following two episodes. I think that it is a little frustrating and you're absolutely right that the cabbie doesn't have a name because you know, it's no one to play off. It's just a cabbie.
1: Look, I want to be clear. I'm, I'm less frustrated in that moment about the overarching story more than that. Like they're truly, they're clearly trying to give the cab driver humanity and like a presence in the scene. Like the acting is pretty good on that guy. He's great. Um, and he uh, he has a family and he's going to die. And, like, there's this moment where uh, the word dying pops up on the screen, which is really overt and awful. But Sherlock, like, realizes, like, ah, oh, I see, this is your motive for killing people. It's because you want to, like, have people embrace the futility of life and death is going to happen to you no matter who you are and all that other nonsense. But we we don't even... Like, I I feel like there is a thread of a good idea there where we humanize our killers in a really meaningful way, but we just don't quite get there because we're so focused on watching Sherlock and Watson talk for 20 minutes in their apartment about nothing.
0: Yeah, and I think it's such a shame because the show does such an excellent job of having the relationship between Sherlock and Watson work in a way that I don't think the books ever quite showed. You know, obviously they have this dynamic and they work well together as a team because you have the intelligent one and you have the one who is, you know, you know, their their buddy cop, right? They they are complementing characters. Um, but the thing that the show does here is it shows how their dysfunctional relationship works. Even though Sherlock is such a difficult person to put up with, they do an excellent job of having John Watson and his traumas lead to him wanting to be around the kind of things that Sherlock is doing, and then him starting to see the charms and positive nature of Sherlock's character so that they become a better working duo.
1: I Look, I appreciate you being positive about this. I... Oh, look, I want to say the fact that you brought up his traumas, I, again, really like that. Maybe I'm not a visionary director, but I want to ask, in your opinion, what is the point of setting up John Watson's trauma and his like the fact that he doesn't actually need a cane to walk around and all that all that fun stuff and then having him discard the cane about halfway through the first episode <laughs> like why was that not as as season long arc that Watson would go on why did they decide to just discard this incredibly strong like psychosomatic trauma aspect of his character about 40 minutes in
0: i I don't know is the answer.
1: Yeah, that that's the biggest question I have. <laughs> the
0: thing is, of, of all of the things that they did wrong, I don't really have a huge problem with that one because to me that makes the point that like, hey, Sherlock and Watson, when they are together, realize they are, are greater than the sum of their parts and that, you know, Sherlock being that character and putting him in a situation which forces him to ignore his psychosomatic injury means that they can move on and work better as a team together. I think that, 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 that as a structural element makes sense. I agree it would have been compelling to drag it out over the rest of the story.
1: I would have loved to have seen that be like the season one arc is Watson like getting over his trauma. Because again, like I am like, look... You you've been listening to this show for long enough to know that I'm the kind of guy who enjoys a good character arc and some, some some compelling human characters. That's why I love the Watson. Um, I feel like the things that Watson should be affected by, like his trauma from Afghanistan, his bum length that he's his cane for, like I feel like these are things that should be core to his character, and they are for a very short period of time, and then they just are dropped immediately.
0: Clearly, they had the underpinnings of a fantastic Sherlock adaptation, but much in the same way that Sir Arthur Conan Doyle got so tired of the character, the showrunners didn't really understand what was so charming about it, so that by the time we get to the final episode and the only clue we're really given to solve one of the mysteries is, oh, one of the victims was interested in astronomy, thus the solution must be the stars. Like, you can see that the mystery goes from being detailed, this is where the woman was, this is what she was wearing, this is what the conditions were, to, oh, stars are involved. Right? Already within the first season, you can see the clues start to thin out very quickly.
1: It seems like the focus changed very quickly from how do we create a good murder mystery story about Sherlock to how do we create several seasons worth of like this long complicated plot, which I I also think they failed at, even though that's like their focus. I don't, there are many things, there are many, many questionable decisions made in the unveiling of the story from, you know, drop name dropping Moriarty in the first episode, which makes sense as a standalone episode. If it was just that one episode, that would make sense. It's like, this is just one story about what's it in Sherlock, but as a series, doesn't make a lot of sense.
0: I think we can talk more about that after the break here. Hope you guys are enjoying our discussion. If you want to check out any more of the uh, the BBC Sherlock series, check out your local streaming services because as, as terrible as it is in so many ways, I still think it is a fun watch, particularly if you can sit down and just talk through it as you're watching it with people because I think kind of having having that B story of discussing it as you go is one of the great strengths of this show despite how poorly it's aged otherwise.
1: Definitely get a friend get some popcorn, get a cat maybe uh, sh- stroke a cat like a menacing supervillain and just enjoy the show.
0: You're listening to Death of the Reader we are Flex and Herds talking about season one of BBC's Sherlock we'll be back in just a second You're listening to Death of the Reader here on 2SER. We are and Herds for your Murder Mystery World Tour. We are currently discussing BBC's Sherlock Season 1 from 2010. This show, I think, was probably a interesting point in my murder mystery career, Herds.
1: Mm-hmm. How so?
0: Because it was the first, I guess, uh, conventionally successful Uh, mystery show I'd ever watched. Obviously, the David Suchet Poirot series, which was my first exposure to the genre as a whole, uh, was very iconic and successful in its own right, but I think that the growth that this show uh, the BBC Sherlock experienced online was an entirely different beast with the enormous fan community that built up around it on websites across the internet did
1: you did you watch this as it was coming out in 2010 or did you kind of jump I this did
0: later? I watched this Man, as it was coming out
1: what experience that must have been
0: yeah and I, I will say and we should get into this right away what I want to talk about in this segment because this is normally when we discuss the mystery and how things are working out and was it fair here I want to talk about Moriarty and the overall narrative of this show. Yeah. Because we said at the end of The Sign of Four that the thing that makes the modern Sherlock adaptations so compelling beyond their normal mystery capacity is that they all have an excellent villain in their various adaptations of Moriarty. Moriarty obviously wasn't a huge character in the books. He wasn't this big overarching villain that was responsible for all of your pain as he's presented in every adaptation these days. But- because of the way that Sherlock is a swashbuckling adventure where these two incredible men go about and do incredible things together, it really just calls for a villain. And that is why Moriarty keeps being pulled to the forefront of a story that he otherwise wouldn't have been. And I think particularly the way that he's presented in this show is very interesting. Obviously, at the end of the first episode, as we said, his name is shouted out. And I, you know, that was a curious move because it felt like it was immediately going to bring things to the forefront. But then when you get to the third episode, halfway through the third episode, there's a big music swell and tension as the museum curator says Moriarty's name. And it's like, well, yeah, we, we know.
1: I mean, I said, as we were doing the, doing the watch party, um, I said that we should have had this be the Moriarty reveal moment rather than it be the very first episode. Because, I mean, you, you mentioned, like, the online community is trying to figure things out and, you know, see where the show's going to go. And I've experienced this sort of thing with other shows myself. Um If we had had no mention of Moriarty, second episode, drop the M in the email. And then everyone's like, is it Moriarty? No, no, it must be a fake out. Maybe it's Mycroft. Maybe Mycroft is Moriarty. Because that's, I mean, I'll be honest, that's the twist that I was expecting. I was expecting that, like, Mycroft is also going to be Moriarty. So they could be like sibling rivalry thing, but they're also arch nemesis. So that'd be awesome. But they didn't do that. Of course, they just, because they literally show us Moriarty at the end of the third episode for some reason. Like he, he stands in front of Sherlock and says, hello, I'm Moriarty. I'm the gay IT man. And I don't mean that in an offensive way, in any shape or form. That's the only two character qualities that we're given to the identity that, that James Moriarty takes in the first scene that we actually see him in. It's in, it's incredible madness. 2010s were a crazy time.
0: They they really were. Such such dark times. I will say, I did like, in that final reveal of Moriarty, that they had the fake out of Watson walking out.
1: Oh, you mean when he walked out as the hostage?
0: Yes. Because there is, there is that moment of doubt that the writers were clearly trying to make where Watson walks out. And this is the brilliant thing, and one of the reasons I love Martin Freeman as a performer, is that... Even though in the course of this show, John Watson displays perhaps a net three emotions, they are all very, very detailed emotions, right? There is confused, but... There are 400 permutations of confused. There is stoic, but there are 400 permutations of stoic. And that moment where he walks out with the big coat on, there is that doubt in your mind where you see the coat and you're like, oh, okay, so he's a hostage. But then he walks out and he looks stoic where everyone else who's been a hostage has been stressed, in tears, worried. And he delivers that line in such a deadpan, confident way that you're like, oh my God, are they going to do this? And of course it's a fake-out, but I think that of all of the things that this show does poorly, the way that they build that moment, the way that the performances make that moment work, despite how completely ludicrous it should be, shows why the show was able to last so long despite its innumerable flaws.
1: Yes, because it is insane. I mean, this is the thing. I've been saying all along, this show is madness, and that is its greatest strength and also its greatest weakness, right? Like... It, none of the decisions that I see in this show make any sense, but the fact that I will think even for a split second that Watson could be Moriarty is brilliant. It's it's right? brilliant. Like, it's it is. so good. It is. Yeah,
0: and then once you've had that fake-out negated and the real Jim Moriarty, because Professor James Moriarty is too pretentious for the 2010s, once he walks out, uh, the way that he carries himself is just phenomenal. The unhinged way that Andrew Scott portrays Jim Moriarty is so incredibly unique. I think the way that Moriarty has been portrayed in everything else I've seen, the way that he is in the books, the way that he is in the other shows... The one that always springs to mind for some reason is the AI uh, Jim Moriarty from Star Trek The Next Generation.
1: I'm sorry, you what?
0: (laughs) Anyway. Okay. But he's always portrayed as this very stable, calm, controlled, if frustrated and unpredictable character. But Andrew Scott's performance is so unhinged, but also quiet... It is like it's scary. I I don't think there's another way to put it. It's
1: a very different interpretation, which I do appreciate. Um, the fact that, like you, you mentioned, you know, there's this moment where what's the does this what, fake out when he walks out, and I I thought you were you know referring to when Moriarty leaves the scene. He says, "All right, I'm done here. You've you've you feel free to fight me again, Sherlock." And then he walks in. At the other side of the room, so that he's as far away from Sherlock as possible, and it's like, screw you, you're gonna die anyway. Now you don't have any cards to play, get get hacked, and it's amazing. It's an amazing moment. It reminded me actually of uh of James uh James Woods, I believe, playing Hades in the in the Disney film. I like have you heard that story about how they, they had people come in and audition, like, oh, I'm Hades and I'm big and evil. And he was like, Hey, Hades, I'm Hades, how you doing? You wanna you wanna have a have a game or something? You know, like be this like very different, very relaxed but still terrifying presence and I think it works really well in both instances.
0: Yeah, it is it is phenomenal. And as we'll continue to say about this show, the performances are like really, really what makes it. And I, I do think that as as well-performed as this whole scene is, there is this, like, really obnoxious back and forth with the narrative tension. You know, obviously the emotive tension of the characters in the scene is really great, but it's like, oh, he's left the room and the tension's off. Oh, and he's back again. and w- uh, Guys, we got to make the tension again. P- put more lasers on them. Put extra lasers.
1: Oh, yeah, that moment where he's got, like, four different laser pointers pointing at him, and one of them is, like, really perfectly centered on his chest and the others are all just, like, flicking about, like... Like you could tell they had four like different like stagehairs and producers just like holding laser pointers at him. It's great. It it
0: just it just feels a little like underbaked, right? Because it, the performances are carrying the scene so well, but there's this whole thing of like, oh, okay, so we've he has this resolved or not? Well, what are we doing? And then it cuts to black before it unveils anything, and then the audience had to wait two years to find out what happened, despite knowing that it would probably just be a fake out because there's a an, uh, there's another season coming. This show, as as I've said, Sherlock needs a villain for modern adaptations, and they did an excellent job of making him. But it is once again an example of how the show kind of focuses on the wrong things. It would have been great to just sink into those performances rather than doing, oh, the double, the triple, the quadruple fake-out. You know, it it overdoes it in so many ways and underdoes it in so many others. And it really would have been nice to sh- see the show meet in the middle.
1: I would love to see an alternate version of this with... Uh... Shorter episodes, mm-hmm. more episodes, um, and less less trying to focus on Moriarty so early on. Like I would have liked to have had, you know, two or three episodes where we just solve cases in London, um, and then on the, the third or fourth episode, say, Ah, there's this new there's this new serial killer. I wonder if who it could be. And they're like, Ah, good, we caught Moriarty, but it's like a fake out or something. And then that's how we introduce him as their antagonist.
0: You know? I will say. The other thing I wanted to point out before we wrap the show up today is we have barely spoken about the second episode.
1: Oh, I mean, we
0: should. (laughs) We we should a bit, but at the same time, I think that it's also important to note that the second episode is actually, like, on the one hand, excellent because it's very standalone, but also very poor because it's so superfluous to the overall structure basically it's like oh guys did you know Moriarty's still here that's the that's the underlying threat of the show we get this kind of interesting plot of John Watson going off and trying to have a relationship and have a regular life while it's constantly undermined by what Sherlock is doing until it eventually comes back around where John Watson's love interest for the moment is put in the firing line of a crossbow on the one hand it's great, it's really silly, we have these action scenes that tie back around at the end, like it opens with a sword fight that seems to have no explanation, that just sets up for the fact that Sherlock and sword fight when we get later on in the episode.
1: I will say, I actually really enjoyed, uh, in terms of set pieces, like, the crossbow that you mentioned is is cleverly foreshadowed, not so cleverly, but it's foreshadowed earlier on in the episode, when the when Watson and his, and his date Sarah go to this, like, this act, circus act, Um, and I want to say for the record, I actually really enjoyed that. I really enjoyed that. They're like, here's this escape artist with the crossbow that's like on a timer because of the sandbag. And when the sand drips out into the pressure plate, it's going to fire the crossbow. Um, and then they have the, uh, the, the, the spider bird, the bird spider or whatever. And it's this other actor who is one of our killers, um, who's doing this like rope act. Uh, He's like trying not to get burned by candles. Like it's great. I really enjoyed that as a set piece. It like really didn't have that much to do with any mysteries other than them just being the murderers, but still, I enjoyed it.
0: It is really curious, though, because I think one of the, as I said, the strengths and weaknesses of this episode is it doesn't tie in and it doesn't tie in. Yeah. <laughs> it's a shame because I think that if the episode, as had all of them been half an hour shorter, yeah. if the episode hadn't included all of the B-plot about Mariotti, if it had been a bit more efficient with the way that it portrayed scenes that excellent, you know, excellent, but incredibly goofy scene where they're like, ah, John Watson, you are Sherlock Holmes because you have his credit card. I love that. It's fantastic. Yeah. It's so, it's so goofy. And in the spirit of the swashbuckling adventures of the original books, but because it doesn't fit in the flow of the narrative that episodes one and three create, it feels way more forgettable when really it's probably the strongest of the the three, excluding the pilot.
1: I I would agree with that. I think the second episode was the one that I I paid the most attention to and had the most interest in kind of solving. Like, we had a a cipher, an ancient Chinese cipher that they were trying to solve. That was great. Um, And yeah, I think that moment, I, I... I don't know, was it revealed that Sherlock had, like, set him up to get captured in his place? Was that a thing? I don't think so, but if it, if it wasn't, they should have done that, because that would have been fun. Um, <laughs> I, I, I'll be honest, when he said, like, no, why not Sherlock? I was like, oh, this is Sherlock, like, setting him up so that he could tail him to the scene of the crime.
0: I don't think the show ever answers it explicitly, but I also think that's a good thing because there's the I, there's the doubt in your mind again, which is one of the show, the things the show does do well, is it creates the doubt in, like, wait, was this the plan all along? and even if it wasn't Sherlock basically takes credit for it at the end by marching in and going like oh you should believe him yeah
1: it's great like, like i don't think it was intentional because i think the show would have you know explained it to death but i like that so much as an idea that Sherlock would like intentionally go around using john watson's id and credit card so that then he could get watson captured so that Sherlock can tail him to the criminals like that's such a fun gambit that's a, that's a Batman gambit,
0: right? It really is. Ultimately, having railed on this show for the past half hour and having railed on this show for the past 10 years, I still absolutely love it. Even as terrible, Herds, I know you haven't seen it, but even as terrible as season four was, the things that season four did well were thoroughly, thoroughly charming. And that is the best part of this show, is that for everything it gets wrong. And it is a long list. It never quite loses that charm of one of the most iconic buddy cop duos in history put out of their time as the showrunners constantly try and question, what would this Sherlock trope be in the modern world? Anyhow, this is death of the reader. We are flexing herds. That has been our discussion on BBC's Sherlock season one. Next week on the show herds, we are going to the other modern Sherlock adaptation, Elementary.
1: Well, we're still waiting on the best adaptation.
0: We have we have a female Doctor Watson <gasps> played by Lucy Liu. Oh. We have a full season to get through. It is going to be a blast.
1: I am I am super ready for this. Lucy Liu is lovely. This is going to be great. I'm in. I'm I'm ready to be blown away by elementary
0: I I remember having a lot of problems with this show. It will be very interesting to see how it has aged.
1: So how much of this are we watching? Is it the whole thing? Just the first season?
0: We will be watching all of season one, uh, but we will be picking out a few favorite episodes to discuss on the show. Sounds good. And we will be posting those on our social media pages at Flex and Herds, so that you know which ones to at least be caught up on before the show.
1: All right, well, that was Death of the Reader. To SCR, 107.3, and we'll see you next time.